and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Baha'i Blogcast. I am the host of this thing. My name is Rain Wilson, and uh, I'm really excited about this guest that I have here today. But you know what? I say that in every Baha'i blogcast, so I need to say something different. I am super thrilled at the mind-blowing possibilities of the upcoming conversation with Ms. Erica Batdorf, who is a Baha'i performance artist who lives in Toronto, near Toronto? Toronto, in, in Toronto. In Toronto itself. Okay, which is awesome. And I'm really excited to be speaking to you, to her, about the world of performance art and how her art and her faith intersect. And uh, it's going to be a pretty wild ride. I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. Very, very happy to be here. Great. And um, we're both kind of stooped over this um microphone at the corner of my desk. Uh, and it was Tierney Sutton who originally introduced me to your work. And she'd always been like, I would be in New York. She'd be like, you've got to go see Erica's performing one night only. And I couldn't work. No, I was in Toronto. I was like, Erica's performing three nights and the blah, blah, blah. You've got to check this woman out. And her, her work is amazing. So um, I had been thinking about you and what you were doing and and through tyranny and then we got introduced over the emails and uh you're here in california i am so what brings you to california i am in santa barbara at some place called a fabulous place called sb cast which is an art science retreat center where scientists that are working with art and art that are using science kind of make stuff it's a very very cool place that's amazing. I've never heard of anything like that before. Like, what's an example? I've never even heard of the mashup of science and art. You know, in the faith, obviously, we talk about science and faith being um, harmonious and working together. How does science and art work together? You know, in a way, I, I probably can't address that as intelligently as the people I'm working with. The fun part of this is I'm working with these people that are way, way, way smarter than I am. And uh-huh. most of the time, I'm just asking them, what does that mean? And what does that mean? But they're, they, I don't know, there's lots of VR, virtual reality. There's lots of um, working with biosensors where you hook people's bodies up to these machines that track their heart rate and their temperature. And you cha- take that data and you turn it into things that can change the lights or change how the sound is those kinds of things yeah it also works the other way around where i went to this amazing place called the allosphere which is this place where it's like vr so picture vr picture like going to a movie where there's 3d you know and the bugs Mm -hmm. are coming out of the film at you and but it's almost like you're inside of it so for example we were looking at somebody's brain Actually, this guy, one of these very smart people's brains, we were inside of it. So you can take scientific concepts. With little virtual reality glasses yeah, on yeah. in a big sphere space. Absolutely. With sound, 3D sound. Well, not 3D, like more than 3D sound. Yeah, surround I, 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 sound. Surround sound. Yeah, Google's phonic yeah. sound, yeah. And so in that context, too, you can take scientific principles like quantum theory and string theory and things I don't understand and visualize them. Yeah, 
or and then it helps people understand them right because a lot of that stuff in words makes no sense to me but if you have a way that you can see it experience experience it, it. Mm-hmm. so they're sort of getting ready to to do actually an installation in the children's museum where they're going to take some of these things and kids can come in and play this machine where they can play with an atom i think and so the atom is visualized so you can change the shape and the color and it only does in most cases what an atom could really do so where's the art in that i get the science but where's the art so in art we want to experience the human condition in some way we want to connect with something greater than ourselves it involves beauty and rhythm and shape and form and you know certain kind of vocabularies that artists use how does the art blend into this work well that's what was fascinating about it it took me a long time to even know that it was science because it was so beautiful and so it was quite abstract it was it was music which was wasn't just music it was music that was being triggered by certain scientific principles Mm -hmm. um so it was beautiful and it was more like kind of being at a psychedelic in the middle of a psychedelic painting wow colors are changing and the sound is changing and it's sort of like disney meets science center meets graffiti art wow so the the art is in the kind of the visceral experience that you're having of the piece and also just the the sheer physical beauty of it yeah yeah, and, and, and also the interactivity of it, which I think is a, is a changing way that a lot of it right. is happening, right? right? Right, So there's a way that you can play this like a guitar, you know? So you, right, you're not in a museum just looking at a square piece of canvas. Yeah. There's an interactivity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this group of people that I'm working with, we brought a piece that we've been working on for a while called Burnish to this place. Um, but it was also a chance for us to meet as a team. And there's a dancer, there's myself, and there's a science, art scientist who works with biosensors, these you know, tracking body signals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there's my colleague, Mark David, who is the computational artist and sort of designer. He does sound, he does visuals, and he can take all that data and turn it into whatever you want. Wow. That's amazing. And tell me about Burnish. What is the show Burnish? Burnish. And where does the word come from? Yeah, the, the Burnish, to me, it, the, the text in Burnish is a lot of, of Baha'i text, actually. It's a lot about burning away the veils, you know, the opening to the long obligatory prayer. Uh, where... But isn't to burnish to polish? Yes, mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it, the piece goes through a lot of principles. I was trying to understand some of the writings about light in the heart. Like Baha'u'llah is always talking about light in the heart. Mm. And I think that's a gorgeous thing. And I love that, you know, we're science and religion come together. So I was trying to understand the writings about fire and light and water from the point of view of science, actually, or like what is fire um, and what is light and where does light come from and and how can that... Did you ever find that out? Because I don't know. What is, <laughs> what is fire and what is light? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think mystic, it's still mystical to me, but it was fun to kind of play. The text plays with, starts off with cleanse the heart, cleanse the heart of all markings. So, but I should contextualize how the text works. It's a one-on-one interactive piece i'm wearing a kind of fantastical indonesian rabbit mask of course of course you know as we do a person sits down across from i know me. you wear it at home a lot I so do. why not just yeah. incorporate it yeah. into you know, your I wear it performance in the bathroom. <laughs> you know i hang out actually i have i've worn the piece the, the rabbit mask all over the world actually which is which has been fun because i wear it and then i see people come and talk to me and then i get them to wear it and then i take their picture of it which is really fun 
Um, I knew a guy who once decided to dress as a rabbit and ride a Greyhound bus across the length of Tennessee dressed as a giant rabbit. <laughs> and he thought it was going to be hysterical, but it ended up being just a big pain in the butt. I, it would be. I, I have traveled as a clown before, and, it, you know, you make up smears on things. And, you know, it's <laughs> So, messy. anyways, back to Burnish. So, yes, back to Burnish. So, in this It's piece, a one-on-one interaction. You're wearing a mask. And someone sits down across from me and I hand them some headphones. I put the headphones on and I whisper to them. And I whisper to them this very mystical text inspired by the writings that it then goes from sort of, you know, cleanse the heart, cleanse the heart. How do you cleanse the heart? And then I go into, let's try light. What's light in the heart? And then light is, light is a thing that comes from a thing that comes from the sun. So it sort of looks at like, what is light? It's electromagnetic particles. And then it goes back to what is fire? Fire is not actually a thing. It's an event, which is really interesting. Light is a thing, but fire is an event. So those wow. kinds of things. And then you go back to the writings and you go, that's really interesting. If light is a thing and fire is an event, how does that change how you read wow. those things and the yeah. writings, those kinds of things? And also when I was developing this piece, I was doing a lot of environmental, I was working with a group of environmental artists in Uzbekistan, of course, as we do. Sure. Um, wearing your rabbit yeah, mask. <laughs> uh, and I was really interested in... You know, I was we were working in Venice. We first premiered this piece at the Venice Biennale 2015. And so this group of international artists that was working together to create this group show where I was developing Burnish, we're, we're given a tour of Venice to, to look at the environmental situation in Venice. I don't yeah. know if you know, Venice is flooding. It's flooding. It's completely. flooding completely. Yeah. It's bad, bad news. And all these scientists are basically saying all the stuff that they're doing to prevent it from flooding, they're not going to work. It was all bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And so I started thinking about, well, you know, Bahala talks about the destruction of the old world. And I thought, maybe it's supposed to flood. Maybe this is a good thing because Venice is, you know, Venice is amazing. I love Venice. It's beautiful. But is flooding a good thing or a bad thing? So I started looking at flooding in the writings and immersion in water. And so it's... Is this how you always create your pieces is through kind of an inspiration through the writings and kind of, it sounds like in this case, you had an an investigation you wanted to go on. Like there were these themes and words that were really powerful to you that you didn't really know what the answer was. So you kind of did a deep dive in the writings and that informed the piece that you create? Absolutely. And I would say that I start with a question that I don't understand, yeah. whether it's about the writing or my personal life. And I, I don't just kind of go, oh, let's throw a writing at this because most of the time I don't know what the writings mean. Um, but I want to and I'm in love with them. So it makes me hang with them for a long time. So, yeah, I do. It's almost like I'm more likely I start with a problem or a question or a thing that's obsessing me um, because I feel like it's really hard to finish a piece of artwork unless I'm doing something that scares me or I'm absolutely obsessed with. Otherwise, I can't get to the end of the grant writing and all the turmoil yeah. you have to get through to make art happen. And then in the midst of that, I look for the writings that are going to answer those questions or dance with me in the process of creating. No, that's interesting. Recently, I was texting my uncle, uh, Rhett Diesner, who's a super knowledgeable Baha'i, because I was coming across all these quotes that were talking about like feeling unity in your heart and like the unity in the heart and feeling unity. And, and I was like, what does that mean? I mean, I know what love is, but what is, how do you feel unity in your heart? You know, I, I think there's a number of writings that equate unity and love as almost being synonymous. You can't really have one without the other, but it's kind of beyond me. So I don't know. 
Yeah, some of the work I do relates to studying the body, the science of the body, and then looking at the writings from that point of view. This sort of covers all of my work as a mover and as a trainer of actors. I train actors to work with the body to create an authentic emotion. And in that context, uh, I've learned a ton about the body. And then that information about the body then informs my understanding of the writings in a really exciting way. So I also do these workshops in the Baha'i community on embodiment and, and your devotional practice. And the, the idea of ecstasy that yeah. Abdul Baha talks about, ecstasy. And I think a lot of us haven't figured out, like we read the word, you know. <laughs> and I, at a certain point in my life when I was struggling with some really hard stuff, whether it was chastity or whatever, when I was younger, I was like, I, I need to feel the love of God. I need it to not be this nice idea in my head. I need to feel it. And as in a, at that time as a dancer and a yoga practitioner, I went on this journey of like, what does that mean to feel the love of God? Not just think about it, but something wow. that actually sustains me in a concrete way. And so over the years, the writings have become much more you know, we think of the heart. A lot of us think of the heart as this sort of Valentine's Day symbol. But the heart, if you actually study the heart, it is uh, an incredible muscle. And scientifically speaking now, they know that if you can feel your heart, actually feel your heart, you'll be happier, your physical heart. And the experience You're not of, talking about reaching into the chest. No, not about entering the cavity of your body <laughs> itself and touching your heart. No, I so won't do, do that, So what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> so the sensations of the heartbeat and the flow, blood flow circulation. So a lot of people- And what does that do if you get connected to that? You actually are happier, scientifically now proven, that you'll be happier if you can feel the sensations of your heart. So the opening to the Seven Valleys, for example, the Valley of Search, where it says, in their search, they have stoutly girded up the loins of service and seek at every moment to journey from the plane of heedlessness into the realm of being. So that line, seek at every moment to journey from the plane, think of that flat thing, mm -hmm. of heedlessness into the realm, three-dimensional thing, wow. of being. And where's it from that you're referencing? Uh, the Valley of Search from the Seven Valleys and Four Valleys by Baha'u'llah. So I went on this journey of studying what what does Abdul Baha, what does Baha'u'llah say about the realm of being? And I got really into the realm of being. And that was really fascinating because a lot of the writings of the realm of being talk about the phenomenal world. Abdul Baha says we have come into the realm of being so that we can perfect our character. I'm paraphrasing there. Mm -hmm. And and the realm of being is very much like your body. Like, yeah, the body mm -hmm. part, mm -hmm. um, which is sometimes religious people can go, oh, yeah, the body part. That's not so important. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, we're here to be in the realm of being for a reason. Mm -hmm. So, and I also was really curious about that. How do you journey from in every moment from the plane of heedlessness into the realm of being? Mm. Meanwhile, I was studying a lot about trauma and dissociation. The thing about how trauma can make us not feel our bodies mm. and how dangerous that is. So the combination of a kind of um, superficial religiosity mm -hmm. can create and encourage dissociation, whether it's meditating yourself out of your body or shaming yourself out of your body. Mm. So I really wanted to understand what Baha'u'llah meant by the realm of being and why we're supposed to be in this body. Um, and certainly as an actor, as a, as a mover, that was particularly important to me. You can't really separate the body from the spirit in a way. That's the old... Uh... It is it the Descartian ideal that you know where there is a we have a mind and a body or we have a higher self and just a lower self and they're they're so interconnected that you know there's countless studies about things that we do in our bodies that affect our spirits and our souls and our and our minds 
just smiling throughout the day actually makes you happier. They found like literally just raising those muscles in your face, you know. And it goes deeper than that. So they now know so much about our physiological awareness, our ability to feel our bodies changes a lot about who we are. Mm-hmm. So I train actors in this ability to be able to feel their bodies in a way that affects the audience of, in terms of emotion. So I've been doing that a long time. And one of the reasons I've hooked up with these art scientists is because one of these scientists is really interested in biosensors and emotion. So I don't like the word emotion so much, and he doesn't either, because what I'm interested in is physiological. Like if if I can get my body, feel my breathing, feel my blood flow, feel gravity, and be able to like memorize text and choreography at the same time it has a has a different effect on the audience the way that you know you see a dog and it makes you happy Mm -hmm, because they're mm -hmm. like they're not thinking about being they're just being and so that concept of being realm of being um how do we just be and the fact that actually a lot of the behaviors that we have in the world whether it's drug culture or violence make it very hard for us to be present in our actual being Mm -hmm. um so i was really investigating the writings about breath you know the diaphragm is the only muscle that is both voluntary and involuntary Hmm. and that even in itself is a fascinating scientific simple very simple scientific piece of information and if you look at the writings on the breaths of the holy spirit all the writings about breathing Hmm. and you know there's a writing that says you you the only way that we can deal with rage is through the breath of the holy spirit well they actually know that breathing stops the production of adrenaline right duh you know so as Mm -hmm. as baha'is we believe that science and religion are supposed to be in harmony so i've been looking at that actually scientifically so this is really like on a higher metaphysical level you're talking about the uh, you know we're told in the writings in countless different ways that that everything in the physical plane is a you know a spiritual representation it's a we're in a shadow world we're in a reflection we're living in a world of reflections of the of the spiritual truth you know um, we see a mountain here, and in the other worlds of God, what a mountain might actually be, we're seeing kind of mirrored here on this physical plane. So you're talking about that kind of enacted in the body as yeah, well. Yeah, and in a really practical way that if you, you know, when you're praying, if you're feeling the inhale and the exhale, you know, you then can moment to moment. We have all these fantastic things. Your heart beats every moment. Mm-hmm. You breathe every moment, like till you're dead. You, yep. you have to deal with those things. Mm-hmm. So to journey from moment, every moment from the plane of heedlessness, like I can space out and forget and, you know, but if I remember the breath, if I remember the sensation of my heartbeat from moment to moment, I can start to work that program so that it's not just during my obligatory prayer and just during, or even how I'm saying my allow abhas. I wish day. you could do a bigger video on that or something for the Baha'i community because I really feel like it's, prayer is so disconnected in the yeah. Baha'i community. It's like, get out the prayer books and kind of everyone sits there in a certain yeah. way. And you you can't sit cross-legged, but you can sit this way. And it's appropriate to do this, but it's not appropriate to do that. And then someone kind of drones on without any emotion in the text. And everyone kind of sits there quietly and their minds are wandering, thinking about their shopping lists. Yeah. And that constitutes prayer yeah. You know, in our community. And if you don't have a connected prayer in our faith community... You don't, you don't have a faith community. Yeah. And it's, I always work with youth and young people to do meditation, practice with them, and, you know, try and really dive into prayer, or sit on the floor in the circle, or turn the lights out, or whatever we can do to kind of, like, connect with the words more deeply and connect through our bodies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I do workshops at, at mostly Lou Helen 
and uh, I want to do more on on uh, transforming your devotional practice. And it, it's incredibly useful for like things like chastity, really practical. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is a really exciting thing that I yeah definitely needs we need to have more of that. If you look at the pictures of Shoghi Effendi, Abdu'l-Baha, and Baha'u'llah, I mean, Mirza Midi died walking, pacing, and praying. Mm-hmm. Not sitting and praying, but walking and praying. Mm-hmm. Abdu'l-Baha would walk in the gardens. Those huge gardens that we have. Yeah. We, and we walk. you can walk for a long time. And it's interesting because there's walking meditations in yes. Buddhism, certainly. And we also know about the healing power of walking yeah. to also to heal trauma because... It sends electromagnetic impulses between the left and right hemispheres yep. of the brain as you walk, which is a very healing thing that humanity has been doing for hundreds of thousands of years, is walking. There's something really powerful and healing in walking. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think that our, our, our some of our kind of religiosity, shall we say, or our fear, I think also this relates to the, the Persian culture is this rich culture, but many of the Iranians that have come to us are traumatized. Mm. And we haven't quite allowed space for these people to heal and tell their stories and to, yes, of course, these martyrs, these these people that have sacrificed their lives, we want to be um, positive about that, but also that has an effect on people. And mm-hmm. we need a place to cry and mourn and, and celebrate mm-hmm. um, in a way that is embodied. And that's, that's difficult to do without actually vocalizing and moving. And you know, what they, we know about trauma now does require, like you say, walking and moving. And that's how I think the arts are critical, not just to make pretty songs for Baha'i events, but for people to actually have a place where they can um, mourn together, celebrate together in a way that's not uh, just in your head. That's beautiful. Well, we're 20 minutes into the interview, and I haven't even started at the beginning of the interview. This has been a great conversation. I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. Where does all this come from? How did you become a Baha'i, and how did you become a performance artist? When I, I lived in Nova Scotia, where there, at that time, and maybe still, not a whole lot of Baha'is, and I had to go and stay. I had, I had epilepsy. And my mom knew this woman who was really, really nice, who she'd met 10 years before, who was from Lebanon. And she said, I think she'll let you stay with her because I had to go to this big hospital in the big city of Halifax. Mm -hmm. So I got in the car with three doctors (laughs) at nine and went and stayed with this amazing family. And this woman, this Sarah Link. Uh, was a Baha'i, and I stayed in this home, and it was just, you know, typical kind of loving Baha'i and Lebanese, who was, you know, good cook, really good, really good food. Um, and in, it was in the middle of March, and they weren't eating. They weren't eating during the daytime. And they would feed me with all this fabulous food. They would sit at the wow. table with me, but they wouldn't eat. And that was very strange. And then we celebrated New Year's in March. I was like, what's that about? And my mother actually was a biblical scholar. She had sat us down not long before that and said, I think Jesus is going to return in the name of the Father, and we have to be looking for him. And so we, had, we had, at that point, it started to going to different churches, and, you know, she was reading to us from the Bhagavad Gita. She was really searching. Hmm. So I came back and told her about this family that didn't eat and, you know, celebrated New Year's in March. And she called them and said, what are you? And they sent her, so they mailed her. Yes, in the old days of mail, they mailed her some books, ah. and they started to come down and visit her. And she she was a raging alcoholic, and so she 
became a Baha'i. In fact, when she became a Baha'i, uh, the, the National Spiritual Assembly said, you know, we'll give you a year to quit drinking. So she taught the faith with a beer in her hand <laughs> for, for a year. Because she had a free pass for she a year. She's so like, live it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was great. We'd have these firesides with her drinking beer. And uh, yeah, she quit drinking after that year, which is a pretty big change in my family. And she was an extraordinary painter mm. um, who was pretty smart. I would say, pretty smart lady. Um, she also struggled with mental illness, which was challenging. And I would say that a lot of what I know about art is from growing up with that crazy lady, um, who, who Thea Witten. She was one of the first people that actually put together the writings on the arts, um, oh, the Baha'i wow. writings in the arts. And then Anne Gordon Perry, I don't know if you know her, she's been very involved in the arts, helped with that compilation. And yeah, a lot of it I learned from her. I was a science brain like kind of kid. I was going to go into physics. I was really good at math. I could do math in my sleep. But then I, my sister, you know, did this play where, you know, in the high school where none of the guys want to act. And she was in a play and she, her husband didn't want to, you know, her husband, the actor, copped out with laryngitis. Mm -hmm. And so I was, had learned the lines with her to help her run her lines. And I was in this play and I played a man. And I got a lot of laughs. So I kind of started doing theater more as a way to s rescue my social life, which was uh -huh. terrible uh -huh. with a crazy mother in a small town in Nova Scotia. And then I just sort of fell in love with theater and I started hitchhiking as a clown. Wait, wait. Okay. <laughs> this is this is nuts. Um, wow. I'm just, I'm reeling in this story. This is a fantastic story and beautiful. That's so cool. How old are you at this point? High school. I left high school a year early and went to university early because it was a bit of a brain. So you're um, 17 or 18 and you fall in love with just performance inspired by your mother. And then you start hitchhiking around Canada as a clown? Well, I, I used to go to Green Acre High School and we didn't have much money. So I would hitchhike from, from Nova Scotia and I would take the trucker boat over to Maine. Yeah. There's a trucker boat called the Evangeline. And I would go as a clown because I thought it would be safer to hitchhike. I mean, people hitchhike in Nova Scotia, but you're, everybody knows everybody. So you're picked up by somebody's uncle. So you're not going to, you know, not going to be the end of the world because right. somebody's uncle is going to know somebody's uncle. So you're probably going to be safe. Right. But hitchhiking, I wasn't, wasn't interested in doing performance at this point. I was going to study math and physics. In fact, I got a big math scholarship and that's what I was going to do. But hitchhiking as a clown became really fun. <laughs> And really exciting. I remember being That's on... kind of a performance art in itself, exactly. just hitchhiking as a clown. I didn't know what I want to do a piece was, yeah. with you hitchhiking as a clown. <laughs> Document really that, video it, and oh my god, riding with long haul yes, truckers. Exactly. Exactly what I did. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> That's and I wouldn't amazing. talk and I had a red nose and I made my costume. There's a wonderful secondhand store in Nova Scotia called Frenchies. Those secondhand people, it's worth going to Nova Scotia to go to Frenchies. Big giant bins of lice filled fabulous clothing um so i got my costume at frenchie's and when i was on the trucker boat it was really exciting somebody's birthday when I, and so someone thought that someone had gotten a clown for somebody's birthday and what's was exciting about being a clown when you don't talk is people tell you your their dreams people start oh so you would be silent i would be silent people would ask me questions and i wouldn't answer and, people and so they would, would just start spilling out their exactly. guts to you yes that's amazing so all of these I want to do that. Boat. I want to do really that. Fun. I want to be on Let's a trucker boat. Yeah, it's really fun. And people tell you all kinds of things that I don't think they would tell a stranger yep. typically. Yeah. Yeah. And and so then I did this thing. I would have sparklers. So I would I would do these things where it's a little bit like burnish actually. Now that I think of it, I would say 
you know, I had this way of saying make a wish. And they, and so I took all of these boat guys. Like, I mean, these guys wanted to be talk. Most of them talked about wanting to be captains of ships or they wanted to like sail around the world. So I took them all to the back of the boat. And this first time I did this and I gave them a balloon and they had the choice. They could either let go of the balloon and get one wish or twist it into two and get two wishes. Mm. But if it burst, sorry, you need to get one balloon. And to see these big guys on the back of this boat trying to decide whether to twist the balloon or not to twist the balloon, which is really exciting. We'll never forget that moment. That's beautiful. Wow. And then you would go to Greenacre. Then I would go to Greenacre. Dressed as a clown. And you'd take off your clown outfit once you were there. Yeah. Oh, no, I would do clown things for the Baha'i classes and stuff. Yeah. And so a lot of it started doing clown things for the Baha'i classes because I I wasn't really good with Do you have any pictures of you as this clown character? Was it a character? It was definitely a character. It was called, I named it uh, myself Bahaj, which I don't, I think that's from the writing somewhere. Bahaj? Bahaj. B-A-H-O-D-G-E. Got to look that up. That's fantastic. Wow. So that started tiptoeing you down the road to being an artist and a Baha'i. So they kind of happened at the same time. With, because of my mother, especially, yeah, art and Baha'i were very linked for me. It was also, you know, leaving out the details of a lot of kind of crazy childhood that wasn't so fun. Sure. And it we was- We all a, do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I that, wrote a whole book where yes, I left yes, out a lot of the details. Left out the a lot of the details of, of the horrors of, I don't know, sometimes I think we shouldn't leave out the details because then it, the people that need to hear that some successful people had horrible- Suffered in yeah. weird ways, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so they were really linked to me. And it was, in some ways, I sh- probably should have been a math nerd. Um, maybe that's why I'm, hang- I'm hanging out with these art scientists now, except that I can't even count anymore. But yeah, and then I just fell into theater and acting. and But I didn't want to play, you know. I was always the one showing, uh, the, the young pretty girl showing up with a King Lear monologue going, why can't I play King Lear? You know, I right. wasn't interested. I wasn't interested in commercial theater because as a woman, I thought, I'm just going to play all the boring, uh, sure. stupid stuff. And I, yeah. I wasn't interested in what the commercial industry of theater allowed me to do. So I knew that I was going to have to write my own stuff. I mean, in, in many ways, I'm not. My mother was a performance artist, but technically, yeah, I do some performance artists, but really, I'm a theater maker, uh, performance maker. Okay. And was a choreographer for a while. So I, I definitely moved fully into the world of And also, as I've read and uh, some articles about you, interdisciplinary yeah. artist, yeah. really, Basically. because you're incorporating you know, film and video and music. You, you write music, you write poetry, too? Uh, yeah, a lot of my work is influenced by poetry. I mean, I sing with it, some musicians in Germany that that happened traveling through Uzbekistan. You know, things you trip Dressed over. Dressed as a clown? No, but maybe that that's where Bahaj comes. It does. Well, after a while, traveling as a young, hitchhiking as as a young person, you know, you, you give that up for good reasons. Uh, I have a little history with performance art myself. I'm just going to use that phrase just because Excellent. it's the more common phrase. But I did a retreat with a woman from uh, Grotowski style theater in Poland and we locked ourselves in a church for a week over a winter break in college and all that was in the church were oranges and a bowls of water and bells and drums and scarves and then we just saw what happened and we just made theater <laughs> in it, that it- room. Was it good or was it a nightmare? It was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it was it was fascinating. It was just kind of like these experiential theater, like, let's just see what happens. Uh-huh. If you have a group of performers in a room with those things and you have no timetable, like, what happens? Right. And that was the performance. Sometimes it would be wild dances and crazy. Sometimes people would be bursting into tears and it was very strange. And yeah. um, 
I, I've always loved kind of experimental theater. I've been involved in a lot of experimental theater in New York and worked with Richard Foreman and a lot of other, um, Andre Gregory. Mm. And, and my wife did performance art in mm -hmm. the East Village. And she was, she worked at, uh, with Mabu Mines mm -hmm. and at PS122 and um, La Mama. And so we spent a lot of years kind of in that scene. I just find it, I find it really fascinating. Wooster Group. They do some amazing work. Amazing yeah. stuff. You know, I realized at the top, I didn't even properly introduce you to the listening audience of dozens of people that will actually hear this podcast. <laughs> Erica Batdorf is an award-winning performer, director, writer, and choreographer. Since 1983, her work has appeared in Canada, France, Germany, Greece, Finland, Denmark. Man, you get around. Italy, Switzerland, Korea, Indonesia, Georgia. You love Georgia. I do love Georgia. And uh, in the U.S., that in such places as Smithsonian Institute, Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, Harvard University, and many other New York City and Toronto arts venues. So, Erica, one thing I was finding out online is that you have a training technique that you've developed. It was, you'd called it the Batdorf Technique, and now you call it KTP. And uh, I'd just love to hear a little bit about that technique and the, and the training you do with young artists. Mm -hmm. The training is designed to allow performers, dancers and actors in particular, right now I'm focused on actors, to recreate emotion through awareness, a specific awareness of their body. So it's like mindfulness practice on steroids. Wow. So you practice, and it's emotionally intense, and um, as, as acting is, right, in, in the early stages can of training. Be. Can mm -hmm. be, can be. Um, so it allows a process of training to feel your breathing, the flow of your blood, uh, your relationship to gravity, pain and pleasure. Actually, all the things that relate to your involuntary systems, the things you don't have control over in mm. your body. And those things now scientifically are known to be directly correlated to emotion. What we call a big word that I use now, interoceptive. So interoceptive basically means all the sensations in your body or the systems in your body that are involuntary. Mm. Versus the things like, you know, you can move your arm. That's actually what they call extraoceptive. So... A dancer or an athlete, for example, can have incredible physical awareness, but it's largely extraoceptive or the muscles that they can control pretty easily. Like mm -hmm. you actually probably, maybe you can, Rain, because you're spectacular. Control your kidneys? Can you control? No? Yes, I can. Watch. <laughs> did you see that? That was fabulous. They just did a double black. I did. Flip. I saw that. Um, so the, the systems in our body that we don't actually have conscious control over and what in the case, what they've learned in the world of trauma and the world of emotion, which is highly, you know, hmm, questionable word in some ways. People have different definitions of what emotion is. But one of the popular definitions of emotion right now is the ever-changing landscape of the body. So the idea is to learn to ride and stay present with the ever-changing landscape of the body. Mm -hmm. Now, that's easy to do when you're sitting in your meditation pillow with your eyes closed. But what if you have to smell, taste, touch, see, and hear, Uta Hagen for real. Mm -hmm. um, those of you who don't know, Uta Hagen's a fabulous actor trainer. Actor teacher. Actor teacher who uses sensory work. So obviously you have a memory by you smell something or what if you're really smelling, really tasting, really using the sensations of your skin, listening and seeing and feeling those involuntary systems. It's really quite hard um, to do, especially with memorized text. So it's a fairly long time to train mm -hmm. in this, but it's absolutely possible to do it. And it, it, we're now doing things like with these art scientists studying the reaction of the audience 
to someone who is more or less hooked up, aware of those internal sensations. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's really exciting. Wow, that's, that's really cool. I find a lot of installation art and performance art and interdisciplinary art can often be very cerebral. And so it kind of leaves me feeling cold. But I don't. when it's great, it can make you feel all kinds of emotions you didn't even know you had. But I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the difference? You know what I mean? Like, why yeah. do you see a piece and it just, it leaves you cold and it just is someone talking gobbledygook with a helmet on their head mm-hmm. and, and pink ballet slippers and doing a monologue about their cousin's suicide and it, it doesn't mean anything to you. And then other, you can see other things. You can see, you know, work of, you know, Wooster Group or Mabu Mines or something, and it's really, like, deeply moving well, in I, some ways. Well, I one of the big distinctions, one of the reasons I don't tend to call myself a performance artist, even though other people do, especially in the U.S., where, frankly, theater's gotten very commercial, mm-hmm. um, versus Europe and Canada, where there's a little bit more funding, so people like me can... Can oh, do that's where all stuff. the Canadian tax dollars are going. That's all of it. To funding Absolutely your weirdo, weirdo Baha'i theater. That, yeah. <laughs> if they only knew. Um, it, it, the difference is training. Mm-hmm. Um, because perform, a lot of performance art, which I, I can love performance art, but, you know, like, you know, there's good actors and there's bad actors, good theater, bad theater. So I don't want to comment on performance art versus theater. But typically the people who are performing in performance art are not trained to perform. They have conceptual ideas. They have visual art background, but they're not trained as performers. Mm. I'm trained as a performer. Hardcore, you know, I have dance training and actor training and Shakespeare, and I did all that. Mm-hmm. So I'm a performer who's doing non-linear theater. Who's doing? I'm not doing traditional story. I'm not doing what people would people normally think of as theater. Mm-hmm. But I'm trained as a performer. So people call me a performance artist. But I would say, oh no, I'm just a theater artist who happens not to do traditional theater structures. That your advice to young actors is to. And young artist is to get training. And do you have any more specific advice to young Baha'i artists? Yeah, I think there's a phenomenon that can happen, that I've seen happen, because the Baha'i youth are so passionate about service to the faith. They're so passionate about getting out there as soon as they can to do junior youth classes, to 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 go and work in an orphanage in a country. And this is happening not just to Baha'is, but to often, I would say, wealthier communities who can take a gap year. So those people that can afford to take a gap year, they go work in an orphanage for a year. And some of them have the desire to be artists. But because the Arts have become dumbed down by our materialistic society. People think, oh, you know, yeah, we all know you have to study to be a doctor. But we don't really think that you have to study to be an artist. But you actually have to have just as much training to be an artist as to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the Baha'i writings, it doesn't say arts and entertainment. It says arts and sciences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're equated or arts and worship. And we... I know I used to be an artist and then I I morphed over into being in in the entertainment business. Oh, that's another story. Oh, I'm curious about that story, though, because I used to perform at the Stellar Adler After Hours Club. Do you know that place? It's a In New York? Or... Yeah, in New York. Uh-huh. And I, I would do, you know, sketch comedy in those clubs, basically to pay the bills for the PS122 gigs that I was doing that would pay mm-hmm. not pay very well. So I would keynote at the Stellar, and, and all of these people who were trying to, you know, get picked up by HBO would come to me, oh, I used to do art. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, well, it's, the challenge for me is to balance art and show business because I have a lot of different hats that yep. I wear. This isn't about me, but I do producing and I have a digital media company and I do writing and directing and I do, I just acted in a giant action shark movie starring Jason Statham. So I do like Excellent. A- entertainment stuff. But then I also did a play at the Geffen Theater, a really experimental uh, one 
person monologue by Will Eno that was very Samuel Beckett-esque. That's all about language and the failings of language to be able to sum up our, our feelings or to be able to tell our stories. And But we have to tell our stories and yet language can never fully reveal who we are. So I just, I always try and make sure that I'm taking time to do art and to push myself in certain ways but that's a different yeah but no it's it adds absolutely related because i think people don't some of the young people out there think in terms of they may not know and i think it's really useful for them to hear this other stuff that you're doing Mm because i think that they sometimes may see your work and not get everything that's behind it that it's just about you know being funny and getting on a tv show it's not just about that and you're clearly being very smart business man as an artist, which you have to be, right? I have to have a very as much of a good business hat on my head as I do an arts hat on my head to make that's, this that's, career fly. That's one of the advice that I give to a young artists a lot is has to do with like knowing when you're wearing which hat. Mm-hmm. And if one puts on their artist hat, like just be an artist, make works of tremendous power and beauty and dig deep and challenge audiences and and make something great and strive to excavate, you know, but then if you're producing, you're trying to get an agent or you're trying to raise funds or you're doing more commercial work or whatever, just take that artist hat off and put on the other one, but know, know the difference. Yes. I give the same talk to my, wow, yeah, how about that? great talk. And it's an important talk. And it's also, but you were saying about, sorry, talking about I, training. Yeah, and also for for Baha'i artists, because I kind of cut yes, you off a little yes, bit. Yes, yes, yes. So for Baha'i artists, I think there's there's this desire. It's very hard to be an artist and not work uh, 24-7 at certain phases of your... Because the arts are not respected in the world yet, and they're not necessarily always funded in the same way that, you know, being a doctor is. So you can rank up a whole bunch of debt as a doctor and pay it back, because you're going to be a doctor. But what if you want to be an experimental artist and you don't have the fortune yeah. of landing a TV show? You you have to work really, really, really hard. Kids are coming out of NYU with, you know, hundred, dollars $200,000 yeah. in debt Crazy. to be an actor. Yes. And and so you have to, I mean, that training is really, really important. The other thing that's adva- advantageous about that training is if you have that training, in some ways, you're not, I believe, you're not going to be as susceptible to the fame racket because if you have training you can teach you can apply it in other contexts Mm -hmm. you can have a quality of work that people will recognize at higher and higher level and you'll be taken seriously um but if you don't have the training you're going to have a short-lived kind of unless you know you're going to have a kind of a short-lived thing going on Mm -hmm. and you're not going to do what Baha'u'llah wants you to do is to be excellent to be excellent at your craft you need to train and early on in my stage of my development, I consulted with the LSA. I said, you know, I was being offered a $20,000. This is a long time ago. That was a lot of money then in Canada, too. <laughs> I was being offered, a, you know, a full ride, basically, whatever that would be now in the States, to do math. And before mm-hmm. computer sciences, it was crazy for me to give up computer science to do theater. But I wanted to do theater, and I consulted with the LSA. I said, this is nuts. I'm going to give away this massive scholarship. Because I want to be a clown yeah. <laughs> you know, at that time, and and uh, and they sort of said yes, but find a good school was the the LSA's response. And this was an LSA in Nova Scotia, with most of them didn't even have a high school education. Yeah, and you no, know, that the power of the institution. They were like yes, but find a good school, and uh, so I found some of the best trainers, and you know. In, in yeah. sophisticated clown work, not just Barnum, not just mm-hmm. circus clowning. Mm-hmm. And and then that led me to theater and that led me to other other training, of course, and Grotowski and all those kinds of things. But I think that that sense of being 
really clear about what your training is and getting good training and is is incredibly important and it may mean a sacrifice but we know as baha'is that the arts are critical right now especially i believe in north america where the diseases are yes there's poverty in our country but there's particularly spiritual poverty yes in our country and mm-hmm. that's what i think artists can address which you're doing so beautifully with soul pancake and and other things that you're doing and i think in that regard addressing the sort of spiritual poverty of our country is worth sacrificing for and that may mean getting training and you know having a job that you know doesn't always pay you what you you like to be paid uh-huh uh-huh um and it may not lead to fame and it's not about fame it's about being excellent and that may or famous as you know it's a wild card and it may or may not happen for you there are other ways like i teach and i love to teach i love to mention sure and that funds my a lot of my artistic work you get to travel and i get to travel a ton and i get to to mentor all kinds of people in and out of of my teaching mm-hmm. work plus and... you have the audiences that you interact with so there's just a lot of different facets to the mm-hmm. work that you do and ways that you connect with people yeah. through it that's really super exciting so a question I ask all of our guests is, what are your current spiritual struggles right now? What are you most dealing with? I always struggle with um, the plan of God versus the plan of Erica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, and of course, you know, the will of God is a big question. And, and how, does, how does one reconcile the notion of um, following your true self independent investigation of the truth you know i i love the obviously we're supposed to be immersed in the plan um but sometimes as an artist it's a big struggle it takes a lot of work to make art happen in mm-hmm. the world it takes a lot of time i'm a parent um my spouse isn't a baha'i so there's a lot of a lot of time spent both you know grant writing and traveling touring is you know time consuming and tiring mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that along with and the ruhi in my home and the devotional gathering in my home, how do I balance mm. all of that? I mean, this is not particular to artists. Balancing all of that is tough. But certainly um, the struggle between do I invest all of my energy in my art practice because it's very integrated with the Baha'i, the writings and all of that, or do I, you know, invest in my Ruhi and devotional stuff? Mm-hmm. I find that a real challenge in terms of how to balance those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just in terms of hours of the day. And, you know, as I get older, I'm, I'm more and more going, like, I want to just, you know, serve Baha'u'llah all the time. But, but does one serve Baha'u'llah within the community or in the greater world? Right. Um, and how do you decide what's the best use of your time? Right. Right. That's, that's a big one. That's, that's, yeah. that's great. Uh, do you have any quotes about the arts or related to the arts that really, um, kind of excite a deep conversation in you? I love the writings, especially because, you know, I, I'm surrounded by the Toronto theater community, which is, you know, I've discovered that you old Southern Californians are real hippies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a lot of spirituality here, which is fantastic. In Toronto, the theater scene is very um, atheistic, yep. overtly and in, intensely. Um which, you know, I, I do well there, but certainly I find that a challenge. Um, so I love the Baha'i writings that deal with God as the unseen essence. Yeah. Because what a lot of my atheist friends, they they don't believe in the same God I don't believe in. Sure. And so I love the writings like, you know, oh, my servant, if he could apprehend with what wonders of my munificence and bounty I have willed. 
I'm going to cry. To entrust your souls, you would of a truth rid yourselves of attachment to all created things and would gain a true knowledge of your own selves, which is the same as the comprehension of mine own being. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And then it goes on, and, and you would perceive well with your inner and outer eye, and as manifest as the revelation of my effulgent name, the seas of my loving kindness moving within you. So I think as a theater artist who gets to do this work where I'm trying to, you know, help my students, my collaborators, myself, deeply mine the self with a base in the realm of being, with a base in the physiological being. I feel like that's a tangible connection to my colleagues, whether they're religious or not, whether they're Baha'is or not, who get that as artists, what we are trying to do is, is mine the best of ourselves. Hmm. My, and using metaphor and using breath and using beautiful text, you know, the, mm -hmm. all the Baha'i writings in tone, melodious, I mean, we as performers have so much to offer to the community in terms of those things. I think it's, uh, that was really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I'll, I'll add to that just a, a very little thing that I always talk about and kind of obsesses me is, you know, one of the central titles of God is the unknowable. Like God is unknowable. And yet in our daily obligatory prayer that we say every single day, like our purpose is to know God. So how do you, knowing the unknowable is our life's mission. Mm -hmm. And what a beautiful mystery that is in uh, the Lakota Sioux talk of God as uh, the name for God is Wanka Tonka, Wakantanka, which literally translates as the great mystery. Absolutely. So I don't believe in a, you know, a judgmental God that has a, creates a heaven and hell and is looking down on us like Santa Claus and who mm -hmm. gets their presents and who doesn't um, and is either sending someone to heaven or, or hell. But I do believe in the great mystery and trying, struggling to know the unknowable. And that's what art is too. Exactly. That's what, that's what I feel like I'm, I have the pleasure, the gift, the bounty of wrestling with every day in my work and have the opportunity to kind of outreach to the world with, um, you know, in the particular obscure, crazy art scenes that I'm in. And that I feel like is a universal struggle that we all have, whether religious or Baha'i or not Baha'i. I think we're all struggling with that mystery, that unknown. That's beautiful. Why don't we just end it there? That was really uh, a good place, a resonant place for us to end our conversation. This has been really exciting and thrilling even more than i thought it was gonna yeah, be really fun you have a website erica batdorf.com i do batdorf.org oh sorry dot org batdorf.org batdorf.org and um it's got information about your performances what you do your resume your history and people can contact you there too yep, if they, absolutely if they want you to come dress as a clown absolutely and perform I'll, in their I'll living room funny clothes for you as um what is it? Ba Badosht? Bahaj. I haven't done Bahaj, Bahaj in years, but yeah, I, I, could, I could drag that guy out. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's great. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you to the dozens of people who are tuning in to Baha'i Blogcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and 